Welcome to Balthazar, Beauty, Goodness, Truth, a series of conversations about the life and teachings of Swiss theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar, who is considered to be one of the most important Catholic intellectuals and writers of the 20th century. Incredibly prolific and diverse, he wrote over 100 books. He is also co-founder with Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger of the acclaimed theological journal, Communio. It is the purpose of this series of programs to introduce some of the themes of Balthasar's work, and perhaps to help some understand better why Hans Urs von Balthasar is so important for modern theology and for the lived experience of the Church today. Balthasar, Beauty, Goodness, Truth. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. In this episode, I am honored to be joined by Dr. Angela Franks to discuss a short primer for the unsettled layman. Dr. Franks is a theologian, writer, and mother of six. She serves as a professor of theology at St. John's Seminary in Boston. Her areas of specialty include the theology of the body, the new evangelization, the Trinity, Christology, and the thought of John Paul II and Hans Urs von Balthasar. She has spoken at numerous conferences, including the International Theology of the Body Congress and on EWTN, Fox News, and many other outlets. She has been published in America Magazine, First Things, Public Discourse, Church Life Journal, Catholic World Report, and academic journals in addition to contributing chapters to edited books. She has written two books on sexual ethics and the history of eugenics. In a short primer for the unsettled layman, Hans Urs von Balthasar addresses the critical issues facing today's Catholic layman, speaking plainly on those ideas and questions which have unsettled many of the Catholic faithful. He brings much-needed clarity into the contemporary confusion. We now begin our conversation with Dr. Angela Franks on a short primer for the unsettled layman. Dr. Franks, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. It is an extraordinary book that's entitled A Short Primer for Unsettled Laymen. It may be short, but it's absolutely enormous in the different areas Balthazar explores. I think it's so important today, don't you? Yes, uh, this book is is really incredible. It, it first came out in 1980, which was toward the end of Balthazar's life. So he's already written thousands of pages by now reflecting on these mysteries in in much greater depth and much greater length. Um, But in a sense, he pulls together all of that in this one volume. And um, it moves from the preface to talking about the situation and ends with talking about apocalypse. And if you look at what the word apocalypse means, we tend to think of it as, you know, apocalypse now or, you know, thermonuclear war or something like that. But in the in the Christian tradition, apocalypse, it refers to revelation. And so that's why the last book of the Bible in, in some translations and some versions is called the book of apocalypse, which we generally translate revelation. And, and it's really revelation that he's interested in, in this book. He keeps talking about the word form, which for Balthazar is a word that refers to his theological aesthetics. So his three multi-volume 
three-part life work. The first part of that has the, the overarching title, The Glory of the Lord, but its topic is a theological aesthetics. And so aesthetics here refers to what we grasp, what we see, kind of see with scare quotes there. So what it is that we're grasping about the faith. And, and so in many ways, this little book is a summary of what in the Ignatius Press English tradition is seven large volumes. This, this little book in some ways um, summarizes that by continually coming back to this idea of the form of the faith, which is ultimately the form of Jesus Christ. And he wants to bring unsettled laymen back to that central form, that that's the thing that we can find our solidity on, right? That's the place on which we can stand is the form of Christ. And so in this book, I think he's really hoping to, to compress all of his reflections on the form of Christ in, um, in a uh, fairly understandable way here for, for us, us unsettled lay people. It's interesting that when you said that the form is which we stand on is Christ in which we stand on, it reminded me of Catherine of Siena when she talks about the Christ bridge, and it's through Christ that we, we make the passing over, that he is the rock, uh, essentially, that firm foundation. A lot of times we don't realize we're on that foundation, and we don't, or we don't look towards him. And I think that's important for us to really grasp, isn't it? Yes, I think especially today. So in, the, in 1980, when he wrote, certainly the church had been through about a decade and a half of a lot of um, unsettling times in all kinds of different ways. And I, I was a youngster in the 70s, and I remember the terrible catechesis and you know, all of those things that, that people complain about, um, you know, bad liturgies. Like I definitely experienced all of that from my little uh, perspective in the pew. And today, you know, a lot of those debates have quieted, or at least there's been stronger direction. Um, Pope St. John Paul II, um, the American Bishops Catechetical Committee, like in a lot of ways, we have stronger direction in, on some of those issues that um, really troubled people in the 70s and 80s. Um, but I think today, what we often see is that people try to find their security right, if we're talking, if this is addressed to unsettled lay people, the German is verunsicherte, so in the sicher word there is, talks about security, right, and so um, when we don't feel that security, I think today we have a tendency to try to find our tribe, right, we go on social media or, um, you know, via our online um, portals, right? We try to go find our personal tribe and like that's going to be where we're going to find security. And it becomes a kind of Catholic identity politics, you know, where we we settle our questions by kind of taking on an identity that somebody's prepared for us. And so that temptation, Balthazar obviously wasn't in the age of social media, but, but he foresees that when we're unsettled, we're going to try to find our security in something that is not Christ, that is not the church that Christ established. And so he wants to bring us back to that central form where that really is the place where we find our security instead of looking for it and all of these other dead ends. 
Well, that is a very provocative thought when you pondered because it's important that we don't lose the uniqueness of each individual person, that we have a unique and important part in the body of Christ. And when we become too assimilated into a particular, I'm going to use the word tribal, a tribal identity, sometimes that uniqueness can get usurped. Is that, is that possible? Oh, yeah, that's that's beautifully put to cast it in terms of our uniqueness, because um, Balthazar is a couple of times in this book, he talks about the church having an identity crisis. And in particular, he refers to clerics, to priests having an identity crisis. And I think he saw this very clearly all around him. I mean, these were his his acquaintances and friends that he saw going through this. And he talks about how the layperson responds with a with a kind of revulsion to the the identity crisis of a priest often being um, unpacked like right in front of them. So to go back to my um, my misused youth, um, like I I remember hearing a priest give a very I mean it was at some parish you know a happy parish event and he had a microphone and he but you could tell he talked very bitterly about the fact that the church required priests to be celibate. And, you know, that kind of thing is demoralizing to the laity when they see their priests having an identity crisis right in front of them. But, um, but these days it's, it's not, it, it, I think that identity crisis has trickled down throughout all of the different states of life in the church. Um, Obviously it also impacted the religious state very considerably in the 1960s and 70s as well. But but lay people can have this identity crisis as well. And I think that that one reason why he's addressing this primer to unsettled lay people is that it's baked into the modern world to be unsettled. We don't have the, the kinds of places that we used to turn to to find our identity. Those places have often been um, have often disappeared. People are donor babies, right? They might not even know who their genetic parents are. Um, so our our ancestry is not a place anymore to find our identity. Um, our national culture is so fractured that that can be hard. You can, can be hard to find your identity in your region or in your country. Um, and so there's for multiple reasons, modernity itself, which kind of puts forward this ideal of the self-made human being where you're not supposed to receive your identity, you're supposed to just make it yourself. So that has trickled through the church as well and has impacted Catholics and Christians who um, have also taken that in, who have who have felt their own identity become unsettled. And I think that in some ways, so obviously that's a very negative, detrimental thing, and it, it wreaks all kinds of havoc all over the place, and it makes people really vulnerable to things like identity politics, to finding their tribe, and to absorbing their, you know, instead of, in fact, building our identity from scratch the way the Promethean idea and modernity is presenting to us, what, what actually happens is that this is exhausting and impossible work. We can't do it. We are always discontent with our identity when we do do it. And so we end up just turning to ident- something like identity politics, right? We, we turn to something that will give us an identity straight off the rack, right, that we can just put on. So in a lot of ways, this identity crisis is very detrimental and very negative. The, the silver lining in this is that 
Christianity itself unsettled these ways of finding our identity. So for the Christian, we just, you know, this is a gospel we just recently read where we're supposed to love Christ above all other things. We're supposed to find our identity primarily in Christ and not primarily in our family or in our country or so forth. And and obviously family and, and country and community, all of these things are, are human goods and we want them to be restored to full health and we want them to be supporting human beings in their in living out a, a genuine human life. But at least today, our crisis enables us to maybe ask questions like, maybe I shouldn't, maybe I, you know, in the past, I would have relied too much on my family or my status or all of these other fundamentally um, superficial things. Instead of, as Balthazar keeps expressing over and over again in his writings, our identity comes from Christ. In particular, it comes from our participation in Christ's mission to save. And so as you're getting to, Chris, that we don't find our identity from a tribe, and we're not supposed to just um, blend in super well and try to take on the thoughts and opinions and um, tasks that other people give to us. Instead, the only way a human being really can find his or her identity is by asking God, what is your particular mission for me? And that's going to be different for every person. And so the, um, the, this uh, flight to other people's preformed identities, right, is not where God wants us to be. Ultimately, we're ultimately supposed to be turning to him. And so in that sense, our situation is full of particular challenges, but also possibly an opportunity to invite people to turn again to that conversion to, to Christ and to my participation in Christ's mission. You know, Angela, the thing about Balthazar that really surprises, I guess, and delights me in a way is that when it's, you see it so clearly just in the very beginnings of this particular book. That here is the man, as you described, wrote this incredible trilogy, which is not three books, but <laughs> volumes. I mean, <laughs> volumes of, in, of insight and wisdom. And he describes things upside down, all around, and it's so thorough. And yet, he has such an appreciation. I, I think sometimes the most beautiful thing for him is to see the beauty of the simplicity in the person. The, the simple person. He doesn't tolerate pomposity very well. He lifts up the wisdom of those that, again, I say simple ones, but he doesn't mean that as a note of a diminishment at all. And he speaks that so clearly in the beginning of this book. Yeah, I think it, that is, it's a really beautiful thing. He's not being patronizing at all in this book. And he really believes that I mean, here, this is one of the most erudite men of the 20th century, and yet um, he doesn't think that learning itself is going to be the shortcut or the replacement to grasping that form of Christ that he talks about so much. And he's obviously not at all opposed to learning, but he doesn't want people to think that this is simply a matter of human construction, right? That if I read enough of what other human beings have written and thought that I'm going to 
construct for myself who it is that Christ is. And so instead, he thinks that the, the person, the simple believer, especially these days, might be more able to grasp that form of Christ. In one of his works, he has this marvelous German word, Gestalt lesenden Denken, which is in good German fashion, three words smushed together into becoming one word. And it literally means the kind of thinking that reads forms. Gestalt is that word for form. And so it's not that it's not thinking, but it's a particular kind of thinking that really requires that simplicity of faith, that simplicity to be willing to receive the form of Christ. And so in this book, he talks about that being only the whole. So it's both only in that there's something, it, it has a definite form. And that means that some things are excluded. Some things are, are not in harmony with the form of Christ. And yet it is the whole. It's not a narrowing, but a widening out. And so what's excluded is what's, what is not, right? Error and untruth and and lack of love, right? But the the whole of God's reality is expressed in Jesus Christ. St. John of the Cross said something once along the lines of, um, when God spoke his word, capital W word, the second person of the Trinity, the son, when God spoke his word, he said all that there was to say. He expressed himself completely. And so then this word becomes incarnate in Jesus Christ. And so really it's in Christ is only the whole. And when we try to make that more complicated by introducing our own human theories, what it does is actually diminish the whole. It doesn't augment it, it diminishes it. And so Balthazar understands that vision of faith is what is truly capable of helping us grasp that whole of the form of Christ. Just to go back for the listener, again, this book is written in 1980. It's little over a decade out from the closing of Vatican II. And you can just imagine, you know, someone coming up just to, it could have been me, the average lay Catholic pew person saying, Father Balthazar, I don't understand what's happened here. What has changed? What is going on? He must have heard that quite a bit because in this work, he essentially starts with that the response to that question, what has happened? And he begins to unpack it. But like a good pastor, he begins to unpack it, but then he puts it back together again, doesn't he? Yes. Yeah. So he he analyzes the situation and that identity crisis in particular of the clerics, and then like how the, la- the laity are impacted by this, how this leads to this polarization within the church. But he doesn't want to keep it at this simple level of, well, here's everything that's going wrong. Mm-hmm. Because that's, that's actually not all that difficult to analyze. And really the, the more important and harder question is, what is real? What is true? What, what is the thing that we, that we find our security on? And, and in the very beginnings, the person that he points to in this book is Mother Teresa, who at mm-hmm. that point was still alive who had not, you know, passed away and been, had her cause for canonization put forward and all of that. He's talking about this living human being. He says about um, why is all the world suddenly looking at the wrinkled but radiant face of the Albanian woman in Calcutta? Mm -hmm. And he says, there's nothing 
in this old woman that is progressive, nothing traditionalist. In other words, she's not a party. There's not, you know, mother, the Mother Teresa team, right? She's not siding with the party. Instead, he says she embodies effortlessly the center, the whole. And so we see, first and foremost, lived out concretely in the lives of the saints. We see this whole being lived out. And we see how this is a living and life-giving reality, as opposed to something, you know, dead and gone that's, you know, a matter for the history books. We see it being lived out in the saints, and in particular in somebody like Mother Teresa. When I came across that, it kind of took my breath away a little bit, because just as you said, at that time, she was just becoming lifted up when there are a lot of voices at talking about the church. Here is one who was capturing the hearts and imaginations of people by just living church, living Christ, actually. And it was a, a powerful message just by doing and being, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And that, and she, I mean, Mother Teresa was no dummy. <laughs> she was a very bright woman. But, but what people were drawn to and, and her message was really the simplicity of the, of the faith rooted on the form of Christ, which she really lived out in her particular way. But hers is not the only way in which to live this out. And this is something that Balthazar um, expresses so beautifully in his understanding of mission, that um, every single Christian has, it's like if you think of this, the infinite mission of Christ as the whole, every Christian has has a particular slice, a tiny little slice of that mission in which we're being invited to share in Christ's mission. And that is going to, that really is what our life is all about, right? The meaning of life, you know, who am I? Why am I here? Like, it's really all about that mission. And so he wants to bring us back to the, to those real concrete and in a sense, existential realities of living out the faith here and now in this difficult situation in which we find ourselves. Yeah, that's the thing. This was written in 1980, 40 years ago. And yet, as I was reading it, I had to keep reminding myself, but it was 40 years ago he wrote this. (laughs) Because it seems as though so much of what he is saying speaks to the human heart today. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot. I mean, (laughs) the, the struggles of the church in modernity, we, we had had some practice by 1980. <laughs> like we, mm-hmm. The, 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 the fault lines had been pretty well revealed by then, but um, the particular problems that we have today are, are pretty close to the sorts of things he's describing. They're obviously different in particulars, but the same diagnosis that he gives here still applies today. I think that's why uh, a short primer for unsettled laymen is important for today. And I'm, I'm glad we use this to set it up because we are learning from someone who understands our reality. And so as he goes to, as I was saying earlier, begins to rebuild our understanding throughout the book, and he takes you know, his time going from layer to layer to layer addressing that, it's relevant. It still works, doesn't it? Yeah. And in some ways, I, I mentioned like that this is, you could view this in a sense as a summary of his theological aesthetics. But in some ways, he's more forthright in this book about the challenges. 
he talks, so he, he, early in the book, he talks about how the whole, this whole that is all that we need, is spun from three strands. And so he wants to keep bringing us back to the importance of the, these three strands as being the, what's necessary to, to weave the whole cloth of, of uh, the church. And those three strands are the word, which means scripture, obviously, but um, also logos, right? So the, the word who is the second person of the Trinity. And so all of the intelligibility of the faith um, is rooted in the word become flesh. So the word is the first strand, sacrament, and then authority as the, the reality that keeps us true to word and sacrament. And so he talks about these three being the, the three basic realities that, that form the church. But then he goes into some specifics about some isms that attack each of these strands. And some of these are under, develop historically, and some of them long predate 1980 and 20, you know, our, the 21st century. But they still have a hold on our imagination and our way of thinking. And he thinks that these are these ways of thinking are corrosive to the three strands. And so he talks about the Enlightenment, which has a reductive understanding of rationality that re- wants to reduce the fullness of word, capital W word, you know, logos, it wants to reduce that to simply, you know, what, what my mind can find understandable and comprehensible, which is certainly a much reduced picture compared to the breadth of God's truth, of God's word. Um, he talks about progressivism um, being a retreat, in fact, instead of a move forward, a retreat from sacramental reality, because it becomes more and more concerned with um, with human acts and accomplishments. And that's precisely what the sacraments are not. The sacraments are God's work, God's action to us, which is symbolized very beautifully in infant baptism, right? Which we're really not, we're, we're simply the re- receiver of this grace. And then he talks about liberalism, which is a, a, a theological term. It doesn't, he's not thinking about American politics per se, but rather this theological and philosophical liberalism was really centered around the idea of freedom. And so that's the, the Latin root there. So the, the importance of the human being being free, and that was believed and is believed to be contrary to any authority, right? Authority is what reduces our freedom. And so he looks at these three ways of thinking that in some ways are the three strands that make up our modern rationality. And that these, this, this makes a cloth that's, that's contrary to what's woven out of word and sacrament and authority. And so he wants us to be more aware of how these ways of thinking and acting and imagining are corrosive to the, the, these strands that God has established of word and sacrament and authority so that we're not pulled into these ways of thinking that damage the faith. And also what we can be forearmed, so forewarned and then therefore forearmed against when we encounter these within the church in the sense of people within the church who are advocating for these this more um, reductive way of thinking and imagining. And so, so it's 
kind of refreshingly forthright here in this little book in the way that he's not necessarily in his more scholarly books, where he really lays out what he thinks are the precise challenges that we're facing today. That particular section, I thought, was remarkable because it does help you if you can know how we got there. Keep going back to that, but it's so relevant even for today because there's a truth to it. It's not just for this time in the 2020s, but it's also been, it was true in 2000 and it was true again back in 1980 that those isms, we really owe it to ourselves to understand what they look like. Yeah, that's right. Because it does, we're not immune from the, nobody's immune from the currents of thought and imagination in his or her particular age. And we're not either. And we can think, you know, I'm just being a ordinary, rational human being by believing in X, Y, or Z. And in fact, it might be a very culturally conditioned way of thinking. And he wants us to think with the church and with Christ and not simply with the currents of of whatever is, you know, whatever fad, intellectual fad is, um, is popular at the moment. Um, and so that's why one reason why he talks about the freedom of real theology, thinking with the church, the freedom of the Christian, which is not a freedom to decide what the form of Christ should be, because that's something that's given to us. It's not something we make, but that, that when we're thinking within that revealed form that we the infinite freedom of god is opened up to us and then you know we we stay creatures but like we have this whole infinite territory to explore and reflect and and participate in and so it's not a restriction of our freedom but actually an opening up of our freedom this concludes part one of our conversation with dr angela franks discussing Hans Urs von Balthasar's A Short Primer for Unsettled Laymen. To learn more about this book or to obtain a copy, go to ignatius.com, the website for its publisher, Ignatius Press, or you can find it at any fine Catholic bookstore. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with many other episodes of this particular series, visit bonbalthasar.com. There, too, you can also access numerous audio excerpts from this book, along with others from the Balthazar Library. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will consider subscribing to this podcast and liking it on whatever platform you may be hearing it on. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about bonbalthazar.com and join us for the next episode of Balthazar, Beauty, Goodness, Truth. <laughs>